you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I'm Terry Fontenot, General Manager of the Atlanta Falcons, and this is the NFL Report. Welcome into the NFL Report. James Palmer, Steve Weich with you. Terry's working his tail off right now, getting ready for the combine and the draft. And Steve, what is? wait a minute. You look like you're in a press box right now. I Where are you right box, now, Steve Adrian. Weich? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in a press box of, at Yeoman Stadium on the campus of Tulane University uh, watching practices for the HBCU Legacy Bowl, which will air Saturday, 4 p.m. Eastern, on NFL Network, me, Bucky Brooks, Sherry Burris, and Charles Davis on the call. Top 100 draft eligible players from HBCUs. It's always a great week, JP, but I got good Wi-Fi in here, too. This picture's looking real clear. Yeah, you look great. You look great. You know who's also in that press box? You mentioned him, Bucky Brooks. He's going to join us talking about some deepest part of the draft, maybe some specific positions that some teams might be intrigued by. We're also going to have Saints head coach Dennis Allen join the show. Let's go. Also, NFL Network insider Tom Pelissero joins us to talk franchise tags and a couple of quarterbacks in Kirk Cousins and Baker Mayfield. But let's start off with Justin Fields, Steve. And we're not saying that solely. You know, we didn't connect Terry Fontenot to introduce this show to Justin Fields because we do know that's a potential landing spot that some teams are trying to connect. Let's talk about the best fit for Justin Fields. And I say this, Steve, specifically because, to my understanding, the Bears are kind of finalizing in this week their their, their mindset on what they want to do at the quarterback position. And then when they get to Indianapolis – Probably a lot of discussions will be had about what teams would be interested in in Justin Fields that started in Mobile and will continue and possible landing spots that he could wind up in. So with that said, and on the, you know, a couple of days before the combine, what's the best fit for Justin Fields, Steve? It's first off, JP, isn't it interesting how the conversation is really no longer the Bears retaining Justin Fields? I mean, that seems like the ship has sailed. Feels like it's we don't know. We really don't know, but it seems like the conversation has swung so much into them using that number one pick on Caleb Williams at quarterback that Justin Fields is gone. So, to answer your question, it's not Atlanta. It's not Pittsburgh. It is the Las Vegas Raiders, where his former offensive coordinator, Luke Getze, takes over. But here's why I think he's a great fit. I look at what their offense is, right? We, You know, he comes into their quarterback. They've got, I think they're going to bring back Josh Jacobs so they can have a dual-threat run game. They've got a pretty good offensive line there. They've got Devontae Adams. They've got some players. They've got a tight end, right? They've got Meyer. They've got some players he can get the ball to. 
They're a physical club, plus all of those great offensive head coaches in that division. Jim Harbaugh, Sean Payton, Andy Reid. They haven't had to defend a quarterback like Justin Fields. I think he could go there and in a division where Antonio Pierce, the only defensive coach, faces some of the greatest coaches that we have seen in modern football, having somebody like him to confuse them, to hold the ball and have explosive play potential, to me, I think he's a Raider all day. Fits the culture. I could see him smoking a cigar with Max Crosby and AP. I think that's the perfect fit. I, well, that's a very – also like Rich Gangarillo joining that staff who yeah. may be an underrated developer of quarterbacks in this league. Okay. Very, very talented in terms of working with quarterbacks. I just look at Pittsburgh and I look at Atlanta and I look at the skill position players that would be around Justin Fields in terms of guys like, you know, George Pickens goes up and gets balls, Steve, right? He goes up and gets balls that are 50-50 type of balls. I also think that those guys exist in Atlanta as well. What I'm curious about this process, and I wanted to add this more than just a typical landing spot. This was a crazy stat sent to us by our research department. The Bears had a 10 or more point lead in the fourth quarter in eight games this season. They lost three of those. Nobody else really lost more than one game that had that type of lead. I want to know what the league considers if this is on Justin Fields, the quarterback, or if this is on the situation in Chicago. He had the worst passer rating in football in the fourth quarter amongst qualified passers. So I want to know how this evaluation evolves because the guy hasn't been dealt the greatest of hands in Chicago. He is actually extremely well-liked by the front office and the people within that locker room. I want to know if they want to do him a solid, Steve. Do they want to send him to a decent location. That's what I'm curious about. And I I do think that's a great point because when you trade away somebody who is a good player um, or who has those types of feelings, you want to trade him to a situation where he could possibly succeed. But I want to go back to what you said, because this conversation about the Steelers continues to intrigue me because Arthur Smith, when he was the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, wanted no parts of Justin Fields. He had the the possibility to draft him. They took Kyle Pitts. Mm-hmm. We asked Terry Fondo this last week. They took Kyle Pitts, a tight end. They bypassed Justin Fields. Why all of a sudden would the head coach who designs the offense take a liking to Justin Fields? That, that's why this conversation, when I hear the Steelers and Arthur Smith, oh, he'd be a perfect fit. Why? Arthur Smith didn't want him once. Why would he want him right now? It, it's just that, that linking, I may be completely off base. I, I don't see I don't see that link. Real quick, JP. Since we're talking about Chicago Bears with the number one pick, possibly or likely using it on quarterback Caleb Williams, at number two sits the Washington Commanders. I think they are going to be more draft day ballers than the Bears. I think they've got the potential to move from two to four, still get the quarterback that they want, pick up some extra picks. They've got cap space to add people in free agency. To me, that is the team to watch with the draft. That's where the draft really starts because I think they've got some pieces and they've got some some time there. They've got a grace period to put things in place where that's going to be the big mover all around the early part of the draft. Listen, Steve, if they're the ones grabbing all the attention, I'm nervous for Ryan Poles. I'm nervous if he gets overshadowed with what he has set up 
leading into this draft. I do think the Fields trade actually happens sooner rather than later. They'd like that to happen. There's more teams that need a quarterback now than when it gets closer to the draft. I think that's plays with this as well. And I think you're right. I think number two is where the draft starts because everybody's assuming it's Caleb Williams at number one. That's locked in. It's going to take a historic haul, as Ian Rappaport reports. So number two seems to be the start of the draft. But at number nine is also the Bears. So I'm fascinated by this thought process that you have to where it could be the Washington Commanders turning all the heads as opposed to the Chicago Bears. I'm fascinated to see what happens, but that's why you went and got Adam Peters, right, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. And look, we'll see Adam Peters. He's done some wheeling and dealing before, before the draft when it comes to those types of picks. When he was with the 49ers, we'll see if he does it again. You know what, JP? When we come back after the break, we've got Saints coach Dennis Allen. They are revamping their offense with a new coordinator, a new scheme. We're going to talk to him about that and how that affects Derek Carr. When we're back on the NFL Report. Roll that tape, LC. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. It's time for the lead block presented by T-Mobile for Business. A sport as fast as football deserves America's fastest 5G network. Businesses go further with T-Mobile for Business. All right, welcome back to the NFL Report. And JP, I am so looking forward to this because we are now joined by New Orleans Saints head coach Dennis Allen. I've known DA way back. Gosh, it's been about 15 years we go back, DA, back to Atlanta. And first off, thanks for joining us. But we we wanted to have you on because this has been such an eventful offseason in terms of Changing of your coaching staff on the offensive side, you hire Clint Kubiak as your offensive coordinator. Just kind of what went into that, and what are you expecting now for your offense? Is, is it is it going to be a radical change, or just something you think fits philosophically what you want to do with this team? Yeah, well, look, obviously we went through an extensive uh, search in terms of interviewing a lot of people for – uh, this position, I think we, I think we interviewed uh, eleven or twelve offensive coordinator candidates. Mm. A lot of really qualified guys. Uh, I felt like, you know, we really needed to do a deep dive into uh, a, a lot of different schemes and a lot of different personalities. Uh, the, the, I wanted to really look at, you know, what was going to be the best fit for the New Orleans Saints for our players that we have here and the things that we need to try to get accomplished. And uh, I felt like Clint Kubiak was uh, obviously the, 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 the person of choice. And, and uh, I've, I've known Clint for a long time. Uh, I feel like I've known the family for, you know, probably over uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, I remember watching Clint's dad, Gary play quarterback back at Texas A&M, uh, you know, yeah. growing up. So I feel like I, I feel like I've known this family. Uh, I feel like I've, I've known uh, this scheme um, for a long time. And, and, and I feel like this is the best scheme 
um, that gives your players the best chance to have success that's going in the National Football League right now. And, and uh, uh, I think Clint uh, is highly intelligent. Uh, he's extremely hard worker. Um, I think we've put together an outstanding uh, staff uh, with a little bit of a mixture of some older veteran coaches that have been there, done that, uh, with some uh, younger, uh, progressive mindset type of guys. And, and I think it's going to be a great mixture for our, for our organization. Yeah, before we move forward to what, what we want to talk about philosophically and scheme-wise, and you, you touched on it there a little bit. I know I've been told back in the day, you know, the way Gary, when he ran it at its highest level, it's almost unguardable at sometimes if it's done the right way, the way this offense can be run. But but specifically, Clint, coming from San Francisco and the way you've seen coaches depart out of San Francisco and have success, what is it that you learned maybe in that interview process with Clint about what that building is doing right to have guys prepared to make a jump like you're having Clint do? Yeah, well, I just think it's really about, um, you know, having having a system that you believe in uh, and then being able mm -hmm. to clearly identify the players that fit that system um, and then being able to acquire the talent that fits that. And, and I think um, – I think they've done as good a job as any in San Francisco of being able to do that. I think they have a belief system of, of things that they, they really firmly believe in, and they don't vary from that. Obviously, the scheme has, has evolved as it's go, gone along. Um, you know, mm -hmm. this goes back to, you know, Mike Shanahan coaching uh, back at Denver, uh, who, yep. you know, Coob going to uh, Houston, uh, and then – and then carrying that scheme along, you know, when he went back to uh, Baltimore and then he went to Minnesota and you just see this scheme having a lot of success. There's probably a little bit more window dressing within the scheme now than maybe what there was, you know, 10 mm. or 15 years ago. Uh, but I just think it, it's it's a system that's quarterback friendly. Uh, and and I think it relies on being able to run the football and uh, and get your play action passing game going. Yeah, I love I love hearing you talk about this because you're a defensive guy, right? You've had to scheme against this, so you know how much of a challenge it is um, schematically. But you just said it. This is a quarterback-friendly system. How do you think this is going to benefit Derek Carr? Well, look, I think Derek's going to uh, do exceptionally well. I, you know, I thought there was a, a point in time this past season where um, – you know, we started incorporating a little bit more of the play-action passing game, and I really felt like that's where our offense started to take off. I thought that's where Derek really kind of mm. started to take off. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've had communication with Derek throughout this process, uh, you know, and talked to him about some of the different candidates that, you know, we were bringing in. Um, and his brother David had played for Gary in, in, uh, in Houston, and that was David's last year in, in Houston. And I was kind of – I was a little bit concerned that, you know, maybe that wouldn't go over that great. And, and, uh, and David had some really good things to say, you know, about the offensive scheme uh, and about how he, uh, you know, really appreciated the scheme and the things that they were doing and, and, and really enjoyed playing for, for Gary and felt like, look, if, if, if there's some similarities, which I think there's a ton between uh, Gary and Clint, that uh, it was going to be a great fit. And so, I'm really kind of excited about that. 
It's interesting you, you bring up Houston. I was a beat guy there when Gary was the head coach, and I remember those drafts, DA, of him kind of finding the guys that fit this scheme we're talking about throughout the draft. So I'm kind of curious, now that you make this switch on offense, what have the meetings been like, and does your draft philosophy maybe change a little bit in the style of player maybe you're looking at on the offensive line or some other spots with the way that, yeah. that Clint wants to run this? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. You know, um, you know, a few years back, um, defensively here, I remember back in 2015, kind of 2016, we weren't sure exactly what we wanted to be defensively, 3-4, 4-3, Seattle 3 defense, uh, New England single high man. Um, we kind of went through a little process, and, and, and uh, it was really kind of in 16 where I, I kind of took over and uh, – I think we clearly identified exactly what we wanted to do defensively uh, and exactly what we were looking for in each position. And so, therefore, we were able to go out and find those guys, 2017 draft and on. And, and I think we became a lot better defense because of that, because we clearly identified what we were looking for. Uh, and I think that's the process that we're going through uh, right now. We're, we're in the process of having our February draft meetings uh, with the scouts uh, with Jeff Ireland, Mickey Loomis, myself, we're in there talking through these guys. Uh, and we had a chance to get the offensive coaching staff in here over the weekend uh, and really sit down with the, you know, with the scouts and, and, and with the people in the draft room and, and kind of go through, look, th this is what we're looking for at the quarterback position. This is what we're looking for in an mm -hmm. offensive tackle. This is what we're looking for at the receiver position. So, uh, I think that's been I think that's been great for our group, uh, and I think we'll we'll have to continue to have those discussions as we go throughout you know this draft process and really not just the draft process but free agency also. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's invigorating. I mean, it's got to be like so cool now to have these types of discussions with a new staff and kind of hear new ideas and and to really do this. So let, let's kind of flip it to the other side of the ball, DA. You know, that's where you you just had one of the best defenses in the NFL for just the longest time. And I want to look at Cam Jordan because last year seemed like just such an aberration. You know, you only had the two sacks. He wasn't putting up, you know, the typical Hall of Fame type of numbers we've seen him put up. Do you consider that just kind of a blip on the radar? You know, and what does he maybe need to do to get back to the Cam that we have seen for more than a decade? Yeah, well, look, I think I think the thing that I would say about Cam, you know, probably where, where the dip occurred a little bit is just his ability to finish – uh, on the quarterback. Um, I think he, he was still effective in kind of being able to get around the quarterback. He just didn't finish as well on the quarterback. And so uh, I think that's one of the things that we've got to continue to look at and work at. I think he's still one of the better run players in our league at the defensive end position. Uh, but look, let's be honest. I mean, as we as we all get older, we, 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 we start to slow down a little bit. I don't think he's at that point um, where – I think he's still got some good football left. Um, and I think it's up to us to try to find the positions and the places to put him in uh, to allow him to still be successful, you know. And, and so, uh, look, the other thing is he, he, he injured his ankle at some point in the season. I think yeah. it might have been the, the Minnesota week. And, um, look, he's such a tough competitor that he just battled through and fought through it. But I think it was probably, you know, six weeks before he started feeling more like himself. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned Cam's age, and, and and I'm not pushing him out the door by any stretch. He's one of my favorite players to watch. But as a head coach now that you're in this position 
and, you, and you're going through this, when a roster starts to get a little bit older, how do you figure out gauging, you know, a guy still, as you mentioned, Cam still has this much left in your mind, gauging between we have to try to maybe flip this and get younger in some aspects, but we still want to value what this guy brings because you have a lot of those type of players that still bring a lot to the table. How do you gauge that? Yeah, look, I think it's a delicate balance, you know, because um, not only do these players, I'm talking about guys like Cam Jordan, I'm talking about guys like Tyron Matthew, I'm talking about guys like Mm -hmm. Demario Davis, we're speaking specifically on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Look, they can still play, uh, and they can still Mm -hmm. play at at a winnable level. Um, and it's all those other intangibles that they can bring to your football team that don't necessarily always show up on the stat sheet, um, but they mm-hmm. they they show up in terms of the culture and and uh, and the way you go about doing things. And so, look, it's a delicate balance, and it's hard because you know these guys have been such great players for such a long time. Uh, that's that's the challenging part of this business, but. Uh, as long as they can play and play at a level that allows us to be able to win, uh, then then uh, I think they're valuable pieces to our team. Yeah, hey, one last question before we let you go here, and and this is important. I'm in New Orleans for the uh, the HBCU Legacy Bowl, the HBCU Combine, which run at your facility, and the Saints have such a rich history with players, coaches, and supporting black college athletics. Even last year, you guys adding Mark Evans, the offensive lineman at Arkansas Pine Bluff. Just what about your organizational commitment to continue to find talent on and off the field to make you guys better year in and year out? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think I think it's really just a commitment to trying to find uh, the best people and the best players that we can find, regardless of where they come from. Uh, and I think this... Uh, you know, this legacy bowl and we had the, the, the combine over here at the facility yesterday where I think there was probably about, you know, 50 kids that got an opportunity to get in front of the NFL scouts, uh, and, and go through some, uh, you know, positional, uh, drills or, or skill drills, um, to get, get their, get their name and get their face in front of, uh, some NFL evaluators and give them an opportunity to maybe have a, a chance to, uh, you know, either be drafted or signed as a free agent. Um, you know, we look, football players come in, in, in all shapes, sizes, and, and areas and backgrounds and all those kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, we're willing to look anywhere we can to find somebody that fits our culture, that fits our program, uh, that can help us, you know, be a successful organization, win some football games. Hey, DA, man, we appreciate support we appreciate you taking yeah. the time with us man you're the best thank you so much good luck you know and you taking out time when the middle of draft prep and putting the staff together means the world so can't thank you enough for joining yeah. james and i here thank at you. the nfl report yeah absolutely guys i always got i always got 15 minutes for you guys there we go we're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna follow you back we're gonna hold you to that the yeah there we are all right well coming up Maybe next all nfl report our tom pelicero <laughs> is going to talk about some key nfl free agents and that guy, Kirk Cousins, will he be available? That's next on the NFL Report. Roll the tape, LC. That's a wrap for the lead block presented by T-Mobile for Business. A sport as fast as football deserves America's fastest 5G network. 
businesses go further with T-Mobile for Business. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Welcome back to the NFL Report. James Palmer, Steve Weich with you. Now NFL Insider Tom Pelissero joins us. Yeah. And Tom, my first question to you is this. We broke bread multiple times in Vegas during the week-long stay we had in there, which is far longer than the 48 hours everybody recommends. Your favorite meal in Las Vegas that you had with me was what? Let's see. Uh, I believe I bailed on one of them about halfway through because I had an engagement that I needed to get to. I believe that one, uh -huh. Lotus of Siam, had the potential to be really good. Everybody raved about it after, but uh, <laughs> SDK potential. Right there in, the, uh, in the Cosmo. That was a, that was a, a fantastic yeah. meal that we had together. Oh, that one I, was fantastic. I, I, that one I was really, it. really good. Really, really good. And all right, speaking of fantastic, um, let's get to the wide receiver position, potential franchise tag candidates. There's two I'm looking at. The first one, T. Higgins. To me, this is a fascinating situation with Cincinnati. And if you give him a contract, then you're just resetting a floor for Jamar Chase, which you have to do down the road. Do you want to pay two wide receivers? Do you move on now? Or do you try to maybe just run it back on the tag and try to get a Lombardi in 2024. Where do things stand, in your opinion, with T. Higgins and the Cincinnati Bengals? Well, you're right, James, because somebody, if T. Higgins were to get to the open market, would pay him like a number one wide receiver. On his own team, it's pretty clear Jamar Chase is that number one guy when he's out mm -hmm. there and fully healthy. The Bengals are not strangers to using the franchise tag. They have done it in the past. They did it with a wide receiver not that long ago in A.J. Green and had him play his final season there on the tag. So certainly a possibility that they could keep T. Higgins on the franchise tag for a year. Nobody's preference, generally speaking, is to end up with somebody on the tag, but they've got enough flexibility right now in terms of their salary cap that that would be an option if they're not able to consummate a deal prior to the negotiating window opening up on March 11th. JP, I'm going to let you follow up since you said you had a second wide receiver yeah. you wanted yeah. to come about. I kind of I kind of blacked out because I was thinking of STK real quick. Um, how about Mike <laughs> Evans down there in Tampa Bay? Because I know there's plenty of teams around the league that are going, this is still an unbelievably productive receiver. And if he finds his way out, this is somebody just like Higgins that teams oh, are going man. to jump at. Well, it's a big number for Mike Evans if you were to franchise tag him based off last year's salary cap number. Also, you have to think, when a player has had the type of career that Mike Evans has had yeah. with the Buccaneers, a thousand yards every single season, being a franchise legend, do you go that tag route if you're not able to work out a deal, or do you say, "Thanks for the memories, thanks for a Super Bowl win, we're going to let you move on with your career right now"? Those are organizational decisions that the Bucks are going to have to make. I know that certain people are making a lot of the fact they didn't get a contract done a couple of days ago before a void date. Voids are not magic. They're not, hey, he immediately becomes a free agent. They just mean it's a matter of accounting differently for future cap numbers yep. onto the cap. 
nothing precluding them from being able to move forward here with a deal on Mike Evans. But let's also be very clear. Mike Evans has earned it. He's one of the most consistent players that the NFL has seen over the past decade here. He's got one more big bite at the apple. I would not think that he would want to be on the franchise tag. I would think, and again, a lot of different ways this could go. Teams have the right to use the tag. But I would think if they can't get a deal done with Mike Evans, he quite possibly wearing a new uniform in 2024. I would agree, Tom, because, look, he'll always be viewed as a Buccaneer. Yeah, even if he has to play another team, he'll always be viewed as a Buccaneer. His, His legacy is solidified there. Let's come off the tag. You know, maybe later we can talk about, you know, Tony Pollard, Saquon Barkley, and this and that. But let's get to some guys with some expiring contracts. And Kirk Cousins is the more, if the more, one of the most, I should say, intriguing guys out there. Because Minnesota, we know they probably would like to keep him, but he's coming off that Achilles. There's the age. What's his situation? Well, I would anticipate, Steve, that Kirk Cousins is going to have a strong market, even going on to his age 36 season and coming off of that torn Achilles. The Vikings want to keep Kirk Cousins, but to this point, there have really been no substantive communication. That's normal for the Vikings. They do a lot of their contract talks with their own free agents at the Combine. That begins next week in Indianapolis. At that point, I would think that everybody involved would have a pretty good idea of what that market for Kirk Cousins is going to be. At the same time, the Vikings are exploring all options in the event that the price tag just becomes too high on Cousins. If he goes elsewhere, wouldn't think that they'd be in the Baker Mayfield mix. There's not a lot of other starting caliber, clear starters available in free agency. I think it may be more of an economical type of veteran, let's say a Sam Darnold coming in, which would buy them some time to bridge the gap, to bring in a young quarterback as well. Maybe even somebody they could draft or sitting there at number 11 could go up, could go down. That would be a possibility. Minnesota in general, guys, in a really unique situation right here because there's not a lot of times you've got three players on your roster who all could be 30 million plus <laughs> per year players with yeah. Kirk Cousins, who can't be tagged, Daniil Hunter, who's also a pending free agent, can't be tagged. And then Justin Jefferson, who has a pretty big vested interest in what happens with Kirk Cousins yeah. in that quarterback situation. Yeah. So a lot of moving parts for Kwesi Adolfo Mensa and Kevin O'Connell to sort through here. Again, the Vikings usually do business. A lot of what they take care of is at the combine. Coming off of that and leading up to March 11th, March 13th, that's where you'll get a better idea of exactly what direction these are going to go. Can I just say, with all the time he missed, Justin Jefferson's season still was absolutely remarkable in what he was able to do with even the games that he missed. He was He's incredible. Uh, you mentioned Baker there real quick, Tom. Um, you look down there in Tampa. We mentioned Mike Evans. We talked about him. And then you could look at the franchise tag, and maybe that's going to Antoine Winfield Jr., their safety. Maybe that's where that tag goes. What's what's the status with where things stand with Baker maybe re-signing in Tampa? Because he becomes available. There's not a lot of veterans, as you mentioned, signal callers that teams are maybe desiring, and he might be one on a, on a decent price. Well, here's what we know, James. The price is going to be higher for Baker Mayfield than it was a year ago when he went there on a Mm one-year deal worth $5 million plus incentives. The question is going to be, how high does that price go? And does another team get seriously involved and make a push for Baker Mayfield? Now, we know the Bucs have expressed an interest. They want Baker Mayfield back. Mayfield said during Super Bowl interviews that getting that offensive coordinator in place, the fact that it's a guy he knows in Liam Cohen, that was one of the Big pieces that had to be in place before he evaluates his situation. Now, I've talked to a lot of people within the league, other general managers who are trying to project this thing out. They all believe Baker Mayfield ends up going back to Tampa, if for no other reason than 
He's been on so many teams okay. from Cleveland to Carolina to L.A. to Tampa over the past couple of years that upending once again and going to another new team probably isn't what he really wants to do. Having said that, Dave Canales isn't there anymore. The guy box. he had success yeah. with in Tampa last year, he's now the Panthers' head coach. How much does that impact things? And also remember this. Okay, Liam Cohen worked with Baker during that time that he spent with L.A. a couple of years ago. So did Zach Robinson, yeah. who's now the Falcons' offensive coordinator, they have an acute quarterback Ooh. need. I'm not saying that the Falcons are going to make a run at this, but in the same division, if they got involved, that's the type of thing that can really make that price go up. And Raheem Morris was the D.C. for the Rams when Baker came in and played well at the end of the right. season a couple of years ago, too. So there's that tie as well. Let's get back to the running backs and the potential franchise tag with Tony Pollard and Saquon Bark. That would seem almost a steep for what both teams got from those running backs last year, even on the tag. That would seem like a steep number for both of those players. Am I am I kind of off base here thinking that an eleven million dollar, twelve, thirteen million dollar tag for both those guys is serviceable enough again? Well, the steepest tag actually would be for Josh Jacobs in Las Vegas. That one could go to fourteen yeah. million plus based upon the fact I'm that he signed him. an upgraded contract that gave him a couple <laughs> extra million. Saquon and Tony Pollard played at essentially the base tag. Barkley did a new deal. They added like $909,000 in incentives, but they were all tied to team performance. When you're the Giants and you lose your quarterback and you play with Tommy DeVito and you win like six games, you're not hitting any of those incentives. So for Saquon, he's said many times he wants to be a Giant for life. The Giants organization has a great affinity for Saquon Barkley. John Maris certainly is in that bucket as well. It would make a lot of sense for them to try to get a deal done. But remember last year, New York made multiple runs at this. They did it before the start of free agency, before the tag window. Last year, Saquon turned down a fairly substantial contract, albeit within the context of running back contracts. So they had to pivot, tag Saquon, and re-sign Daniel Jones to an extension again. They made another push to re-sign Saquon during the bye week last year. Again, didn't end up doing it. So all of that leads you to a situation now, and again, before July as well. So several times they've tried to make a run at getting something done with Saquon. It hasn't worked out to this point. You would think, though, again, they would like to get something done. The question is going to be the number. And then when it comes to Tony Pollard, obviously his numbers weren't great in his first year as the lead back, 3.9 yards per carry. I talked to Emmett Smith in an interview during Super Bowl week. I asked him, what would you do with Tony Pollard? Emmett said, I think you have to re-sign him. His argument was, yeah, it is different being the number one back versus the number two back. Cowboys also, based on how they played offense, didn't necessarily always commit to being a running football team. Mm -hmm. In Emmett's point of view, and I respect that more than anything I'm going to say on this show, let's be honest here, he felt like there's more that they could unlock with Tony Pollard moving forward. But tagging him again at $12 million plus, to your point, Steve, that does seem right. Yeah, that's a steep number. Tom P., good stuff. Have fun during franchise tag season. Combine season, you two go get a meal. I'm not. I'll see you in Indy, Tom. To, uh, we'll have, we'll break you know, bread there too. Yo, yeah, Tom's nice gonna dip out. Appreciate again. you having me. Tom, Tom's gonna dip out again too halfway because he's got a more important engagement again. JP, <laughs> do take that. That's probably one. what happened. <laughs> right, the when we come back on the NFL report, Caleb Williams, the number one quarterback. We're about to talk about him and others who might not be, or maybe they are. We're back on the NFL Report. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. 
That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. The top draft eligible players from historically black colleges and universities put on the pads one last time to show they're worthy of getting drafted. The third annual All-State HBCU Legacy Bowl Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern exclusively on NFL Network and streaming on NFL+. And speaking of the HBCU Legacy Bowl, Bucky Brooks, who now joins us, will be on the call with me. And Bucky and I right now are at Tulane Stadium, about a third and 14 away from one another in the press box here <laughs> at the Stadium at Tulane, JB. Bucky B, appreciate you joining us. We're going to get to some of these HBCU players who are participating in practice this week. In just a minute, there's the horn kind of signaling practice is over. But, Bucky, let's get to the overall draft class coming in since we're in that window the nfl draft combine starts soon what can you just tell us overall about this draft class you know steve is a really solid draft class up at the top of the board now this will be the first year where we see some of the i would say the negative effects of nil uh some of the covid stuff where the draft is not as deep when we get to day three but the first three rounds should be loaded with players that can come in make contributions and those things as it relates to positions that are really um, loaded with talent. I would say the quarterback position, you got solid uh, prospects. You have a ton of big-time playmakers at wide receiver, probably the deepest position of the draft. Offensive line, particularly offensive tackle, is loaded with playmakers and talent where you can see a bunch of first-rounders come off the board. On defense, you have a solid pass rushing class. Like you have guys that are intriguing, but it's not as deep as uh, pat some past years. And then I would say cornerback. You have a bunch of big cornerbacks, guys that are over 5'10", 5'11", that can play the game, utilizing a variety of techniques. So if you're in need of kind of what we call the, the, the core positions, you can find those guys. Passers, playmakers, pass protectors, handful of pass rushers, and then some defensive playmakers at corner, you can get those guys. You just won't find a lot at running back and linebacker. That's where you kind of have to go shopping elsewhere. Okay, I like it. I like it. We'll start with the most important one. It's the quarterback spot, Bucky. And this is not my my Ohio State blood right here, throwing shade at J.J. McCarthy and what he's done to my team in the game. What I'm curious about is what what do you see in your evaluations and talking to people in terms of size and in terms of it just seems like he hasn't had to be the guy in big moments. Uh, The team's been brilliant uh, around him. Is that kind of, I don't want to say a knock on him, but when you haven't seen him have to do that as much, what happens in your evaluation process when you don't have a whole lot of examples of that and you're going to need him to do it at the next level? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a very valid concern. Uh, the thing about J.J. McCarthy, the things that will go well for him will be winning pedigree. He's done it on a big stage, on a ton of games at Michigan. He'll go down maybe as the greatest quarterback to ever play there just based on how the team succeeded. He's been a guy that has just kind of managed the team, driven the bus, and found a way to get the team into the winner's circle. But when you watch him play, athletically, he's intriguing. He can run the ball. He's a legitimate dual-threat quarterback, super athletic, has a strong arm, can deliver deadly strikes. And those things, you just don't have 
a lot of visual evidence on tape to say that he could be the guy that is the driving force of the offense. That said, when I look at him, it reminds me a lot of the same evaluation that I had with Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert, when he played at Oregon, okay. was not asked to do a lot of stuff, played in a more of a conservative offense, but then he gets to the National Football League and flourishes. I think J.J. McCarthy is intriguing because people see the traits and the tools. They see the athleticism. They see the strong arm. They recognize and appreciate the intangibles. That's why he's going to be a guy that's of interest in the first round. Wow, Buck, you mm. sound like people evaluating some Dean mm. Smith Tar Heels back in the day because they had so many good players. <laughs> None of them were asked to drive the bus. Look, you talked about how great this receiving class is. We know at the very top there's Marvin Harrison Jr., who might be the best player overall in this draft. What about the top-end depth, and what type of players are these teams getting? Because we've seen wide receivers buck the norm over the past five or six years and come in and have an immediate impact. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is the byproduct of what we call seven-on-seven culture. The wide receivers that are entering the league now are more experienced, more polished than they've ever been. Part of the reason is because they're catching more balls, running more routes than they ever have. From the time they're in Pop Warner to the time they graduate college, these guys have really played football year-round. And it manifests itself in guys like Marvin Harrison Jr. being a very polished player that comes out, reminds me a lot of Larry Fitzgerald, in terms of just guess it, when you see him, he's a plug-and-play pro. He can run routes. He can catch it over the middle field. He has speed to burn. But to me, he's a legitimate number one receiver because he not only commands double coverage, but he can defeat cover coverage. It's easy to envision him being the anchor of a passing game. But it extends beyond him. Rome Adunze from Washington is another guy that people are buzzing about. And one of the reasons they're buzzing about the Washington standout is because He's big. He's physical. Does a great job of catching the ball in his hands. He wins the 50-50 balls. And really, when you watch him, he reminds me a lot of Jamar Chase. Physical, imposing presence, even though he doesn't have, I would say, superior size. He plays with a rugged game. That means he's going to win, and he's going to win a ton on the perimeter. And the last guy we got to talk about is LSU standout Malik Neighbors. Uh, Just a total package. Uh, Can catch it, run and catch specialists can separate, does a great job of making things happen. And even though like he shared the marquee with another talented player, he is another guy that is ready to roll. These three players will vie for the number one spot. Even though we've talked about Marvin Harrison Jr. being the number one, these other guys will give them a run for their money because I think it comes down to ice cream shops. What kind of flavors do you like uh, to go in your favorite waffle cone? These guys bring a lot to the table. That's why so much... How many people are buzzing about that? I love the analogy, Buck, because I want to use it for for what Terry Fontenot told us on this show last week. Uh, He was on with us and said, they're really excited about the round two, round three picks that they have because he believes that group right there, you have the ability to find a lot of talent in different spots. I'm curious if maybe you could read into what he's saying. We don't know how the draft is going to fall by then, right? It always can kind of fall and there's runs at different spots. But maybe in that, could you kind of maybe with what you've looked at, round two, round three, what's he talking about of what maybe value you can find there? Well, I mean, like, I don't necessarily think that the Atlanta Falcons need wide receivers, but we have seen in recent years wide receivers come from every round of the draft and have an immediate impact. Everybody would talk about mm-hmm. Puka Nakua, but let's just talk about the impact that Tank Dale was having yes. on the Houston Texans 
when he jumped out mm-hmm. and made a ton of plays. There are more of those kinds of players where supply and demand, look, the supply is overwhelming when it comes to the wide receiver position. But it also would be an opportunity for teams to look at offensive tackles. And if you need to fortify the offensive line, there are a bunch of intriguing players that can come off the board. We always talk about the first rounders, but look, man, there's an offensive tackle class of Joe Alt, uh, uh, Talis Fuaga, Amarius Mims, J.C. Latham, Troy Fatuna that are going to be available at the bottom of the first round, top of the second round, so you can get some of those Mm. needs filled. And also on the interior, because as I'm thinking about the Atlanta Falcons, I'm thinking really the main thing is them fixing quarterback and continue to upgrade that offensive line. Graham Barton, Jackson Powers Johnson, Hooper Beebe, Chris Haynes. There are a lot of players on the offensive Mm -hmm. side of the ball that are available in the second and third rounds that will be able to come in and give you starters. And then if we talk about, like literally, I talk about the draft not being plentiful in terms of running backs and linebackers, but that's where those guys are going to come off the board. We have a namesake in Jeremiah Trotter Jr. That would be a nice fit, second, Mm. third round, instinctive, active, and those things. I think the reason why general managers get excited is because they know if I don't want to expend a first-round pick, there are some positions that I can target in the second and third rounds and really upgrade my roster. All right, Buck, we're talking about some day two and day three guys. We are here at the HBCU Legacy Bowl. The first day of the full practice is just wrapped up here at Tulane University. Team Robinson, players made up from the SWAC and the SIAC, just finished their drills. But later on, it'll be Team Gaither and their quarterback, Davius Richard from North Carolina Central, is that dude. Two-time Heck Player of the Year, a great runner, a great thrower. He blew up the combine. What about a player like him who is so accomplished at this level, who has all the physical specs about him getting into a camp and getting a shot, especially with the duality he poses? You know, I think this year, um, I mean, look, even previous years, like last year we saw guys like Sean Clifford go in the fifth round and uh, DTR, Dorian Thompson Robinson, go in the fifth round and have an mm-hmm. opportunity to play. I think teams are kind of getting hip to the fact that you need to continue to take quarterbacks. Uh, just due to the nature of the position, the value of the position, and the injury situations that we see at the position, you need to have a bunch of guys in the stable. When you talk about Davius Richard, one of the things that will intrigue teams about him is the spectacular playmaking ability that he possesses, not only as a thrower, but as a dynamic runner. When you watched him at NC Central, he made plays. He had the ability to put this offense on his back. People will need to look no further than the Celebration Bowl a year ago, when he knocked off Coach Prime's undefeated Jackson State team and did it in splendid fashion, this is a big-time playmaker. And the thing that I like about him, Steve, is when we had an opportunity to talk to him after the combine, the ability to articulate and to really uh, explain the whys behind what he does on the field, to me, that is valuable because when you talk to teams, they want guys that can take board, the, the information from the board to the field Richard is one of those, except he's one of those guys that can do that. Man, Buck, when you've seen quarterbacks over the last couple of years come out, and Brock Purdy's one that jumps out, obviously, with everything he's done, but experience, right? You've played those snaps in the game, and now it seems like teams are seeing that, you know, its importance almost go up. I have to finish with this because this is what Steve and I show is about. It's about offensive linemen, and it's about the nickel corner position. For some reason, we talk about those two more than anything else on this show. 
Have you seen in teams evaluations, Buck, over the last couple of years, the way that nickel spot has become yeah. more and more important to finding that on your defensive side of the ball? Trent McDuffie, obviously, what he did with the Super Bowl champs just mm-hmm. jumps out at us, you know, repeatedly. What have you seen in terms of the evaluations and the importance of finding that spot over the last couple of drafts? Yeah, so I think it, it, it's been changing for a while. There, it's become now where teams consider uh, defenses to have 12 starters. And that nickel corner is considered a starter. And it's not only considered mm-hmm. a starter, but now you're scouting for play, have a specific set of skills to play at the nickel position. Because when you're playing nickel corner, I want people to understand, uh, back in the day, the nickel used to be your best corner. Because what you're asking them to do is to be a hybrid player. He's a hybrid linebacker mm-hmm. slash defensive back who is tasked with being uh, assigned to sometimes the slipperiest uh, wide receiver, but also being factored into the running game. So guys need to tackle well. They need to have quickness to be able to shadow in space. They need to be high IQ guys because you ask them to do a lot of things at that position. And if they have pass rush skills where they can blitz off the edge, it really makes him a very mm. valuable commodity. Mm. So when you talk about guys like Trent McDuffie and the work that he was able to do last year for the Kansas City Chiefs, people are going to look at that and they want players who can kind of impact the game in a variety of ways. I just think it's the nature of the way the NFL is going. You're seeing teams blitz more. You're seeing teams play more man-to-man. And you continue to see the evolution of the defense where you have positionless players manning multiple spots. The nickel position is that spot that has really become a huge uh, position for championship caliber defense. Love it. I don't know, Buck, I don't know how many guys that play that spot Steve and I have had on the show this year. I don't know, it might be <laughs> half a dozen of, of those guys. Kenny Moore, yes, Isabel, a couple of those guys have, have been on the show, and, we, and we've absolutely loved chatting with them about the position. You know it so well, and you broke it down brilliantly. Listen, we stole Bucky from Move the Sticks for our show. Uh, but make sure you keep an eye listening to him and Daniel Jeremiah throughout this entire draft draft off season or for in season for you off season for me, Buck. Appreciate it, man. Please Appreciate come join us uh, again before this draft rolls around on the NFL Report, Buck. Awesome stuff. Thank you. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, Matthew Slater announces his retirement. Can a man with one NFL reception as a wide receiver make it to the Hall of Fame? We're going to debate that next on the NFL Report. You're listening to the NFL Report podcast, but you can watch me, Steve Weich, and my co-host James Palmer on the NFL Report at 7.15 Eastern Time on Mondays and Thursdays on the NFL app and free streaming platforms on the NFL channel on Roku, Tubi, Peacock, Pluto TV, and other free streaming apps. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Welcome back to the NFL Report as we close things out. James Palmer, Steve Weich with you alongside Tom Brady and a recently retired Matthew Slater, the special teams extraordinaire for the New England Patriots. Brady saying the best teammate and even better man. Congratulations on the perfect 
career, a 10-time Pro Bowler, Steve, two-time All-Pro, who had eight career targets. He's listed on your roster as a wide receiver, but eight targets in his whole career, one catch. You know so much about the Hall of Fame. Does Matthew Slater get into Canton? This is going to be real interesting because, look, Devin Hester is going in as a member of the class of 2024. He's the greatest returner ever. We have two of the greatest kickers, mm-hmm. John Stenerud and Morton Anderson, in the game, in the, in the hall. The greatest punter ever, and Ray Guy, in the hall. God. What about one of the best coverage guys, blocker, setup men ever, Matthew Slater? Interesting because Steve Tasker, the legend of the Buffalo Bills, people have been clamoring for him to get in for more than a decade. Do you put Matthew Slater, who you see right here, you know how hard this is to pick somebody up on the run? As you see him on that type of play, does he get in before Steve Tasker? This is going to be a very interesting debate because Matthew Slater is far more decorated as a special teamer than any non-returner or punter or kicker to get into the Hall, JP. And Steve, I'll throw this on his resume as well real quick. And I've talked to people in New England about this. His role in the second dynasty, essentially, the Patriots have is massive. A special teams player that took the attention to detail in operating in coverage and kick return, all those aspects added to the attention to detail and the culture that Bill Belichick created there. If you talk to people in that building, they will tell you he played a far bigger role than people outside the Boston area understand in how that dynasty was developed. It was Teddy Bruschi that handed the baton essentially to Matthew Slater. How crazy is that? A special teamer, an unbelievable career. Remember, our time has changed, Steve, by 15 minutes. So don't miss the first 15 minutes of the show. We are, remember, Mondays and Thursdays, 7 o'clock on the NFL channel. That's on Roku and Tubi and Peacock and everywhere. And then all later, it'll be on YouTube. Steve, the picture still looks great. The time's just a little bit different. Times are a bit different, and we're still a podcast that you can listen to whenever. When you're out walking your dog, when you're up on the slopes, when you're watching the NFL Combine next week. See you Thursday, JP. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.